verse 23, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. These are the words of God once again. Give them your attention. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. O Lord our God, we come to this holy sacrament and the doctrine of it anyhow. And uh, we know that with such wonderful uh, mystical realities, this mystical union that your people have with Christ, we know that such preaching uh, is insufficient when it is done in the power and wisdom and the intellect of the man who preaches. Instead, Father, our pleading is for the Holy Ghost to preach through this man, that this man would continue to decrease, that Jesus Christ and what it means to meet with God would be impressed upon our souls, that they would not hear a man preach uh, the folly of man's wisdom, but instead would preach the word of God, because that is the man's task. But the man is unable to do it without your spirit. And may that self, that same spirit, Father, rest on all the those who will hear this word, that they would embrace the word of God, and that they would better understand their God and better walk with their God, giving all glory to you, O Lord. And so to that end, Father, in the preaching of the word, prepare us to meet with our God, for we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, preparation is necessary before man can meet with God. Amos, I alluded to this in my opening prayer just now, Amos said, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel, in Amos 4 verse 12. What was he proclaiming? That each one in Israel must examine their standing with God. We tell men on their deathbeds, don't we? Make your preparations to meet with God. You're going to meet with God. Prepare yourself for this meeting. Even when it comes to the Sabbath day, the day when God's people meet with Him, the day prior in the Scripture is called the day of preparation, where men get their affairs in order to clear off their day, to meet with God. For instance, in Luke 23, 45, when Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for Christ's body, 
And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. Which is why the Sabbath clause, right, the clause in the Sabbath commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What is remembering supposed to work in us? A preparation for the day that is coming. Why do we prepare for the day? Because it is just a certain day on the calendar? No, we prepare for the day because we prepare to meet with thy God, O Israel. That's why we prepare the day. It does not require just a preparation to clear off our chores and our appointments. And this is all that we tend to do. But it is meant to be a spiritual preparation of our hearts and our minds. We pray, O God, like we did this morning, O God, be hallowed in our worship, be glorified in our worship. We must pray for power and wisdom to come on the minister when he proclaims the word of God. We must examine our hearts before the worship service and we must confess our unrepentant sins to the Lord. We would plead with God, fill our souls with richness and fatness and make the communion of the saints joyous and full of love. We would prepare for the Sabbath if we would ask the Father to draw the lost to the church to hear the word and be converted. The Sabbath weekly is a divine appointment with God and we must prepare for it. Luke 23 and the synoptics teach us that. That is a general principle though. I'm not belaboring to teach us on preparing for the Sabbath, but a general principle. Man is called to prepare to meet with God. Even before our services, right? We take a minute to prepare our hearts to meet with the Lord. Because we come into the courts of God without any idea of the need to prepare. We need to quiet our hearts. We need to prepare to meet with God and to really embrace Him and to be prepared to be diligent in listening to Him, to praising Him from the heart as I reflect on the mercies of God and God my Creator, God my Maker. And we don't prepare our hearts by thinking about such basic things. So that when we come into the worship of God, I am ready to bow down before the Lord who is thrice holy. I often don't even come to worship thinking God is holy as we heard this morning. This is why we have to prepare our hearts to meet with God, friends. That is why Amos cried out to Israel, prepare to meet thy God. That is why on the deathbed we tell men, prepare to meet with God. One thing they may have never done in their life, getting right with Christ. But these times in our spiritual journey on this earth, the times we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need even greater preparation than on the regular Sabbath days. Because last time we saw how near Jesus Christ, God-man, draws to us in the Supper. The Holy Spirit causing us to feast on His body and blood spiritually. That Christ may dwell in us and we may dwell in Him as He said in John chapter 6. There is a time of intimate union between the communicant and his God. It is a holy foretaste of the wedding union between our Lord and ourselves. You know, that sermon was preached first before this one, so you might understand how you truly meet with Jesus Christ in it. Not meeting bread and wine, but meeting his very body and blood spiritually. That is why the apostle says, if any man hunger, let him eat at home. You're not coming to the Lord's Supper to eat the bread and the wine. It has no value to you if that is all you're doing here. But we saw last time that we come to feast on Christ crucified. 
And that is the reason given here why we must prepare in verses 26 and 27. It says here, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the, the Lord's death till he come, then wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Because we meet with Jesus in a heightened way, we are called to prepare for that meeting. But so many of us, when we consider how this is a foretaste of the wedding feast itself, I think so many of us forget that great parable that Jesus Christ delivered of the foolish virgins, don't we? Where they did not prepare to meet the bridegroom and the door was shut to them. You see that. All of these pictures in the word of God are pointing to the same message. We prepare to meet with Christ. It's part and parcel. So that when we come to the table, instead of the door shut, the door is open. And we truly meet with the Lord. I want to press this again, this analogy, because you remember a few communions ago, we remember that we heard from Revelation 19.7, near the end of the book, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And what did his wife do? And his wife hath made herself ready. She prepared for the great wedding day, just as wives do, to meet with her bridegroom. And the only way the table becomes a table of gladness and rejoicing, a table to honor Christ, is when his wife hath made herself ready. When you have made yourself ready to meet with the Lord, then the table of the Lord is a table of great joy and it brings glory to Christ. So with that, to introduce the theme, the general idea of preparation, let us consider our specific theme, the need to prepare for the supper. And let's divide our time into the three headings on your bulletin. The first is the basis of preparation, scripturally that is. Second, the practice of preparation. What do we do when we prepare? And third, what is the goal of preparation? What is it that we are doing? Um, what is the end result of our preparation? All right, so first, the basis of preparation. Now, in our introduction to the sermon, I have already begun this work, showing man must prepare to meet with his God. So let's consider more of the scriptural basis for preparation and for the Lord's Supper specifically. As I want to draw back to the initial genesis of this sermon series, which is that some might look at our communion practices and think, oh, tradition. The Reformed Presbyterians with their communion seasons and preparatory services, they just simply followed the traditions of their fathers. Really, though, we could celebrate communion any way that we wish. But what we want to see is that there is a scriptural call for the things that we do in our church. And we don't do things by tradition. If we do anything by tradition, let us discard it if it has no place in the word of God. And so, especially for you boys and girls, this is often preached, the series is preached, so you do not grow up thinking we simply do what Reformed Presbyterians do. I'm a Reformed Presbyterian, I do this. My friends at the Methodist Church, they do that. Friends over here at the Baptist Church do that. But we want to say we are Reformed Presbyterians by conviction because the Word of God teaches these things. And so that you can explain to your friends, well, why do you have a communion table? Why do you prepare before you come to the Lord's Supper? Why do you only sing the Psalms? You say, it's because the Bible teaches this. And that's where you want to be, all of us. So in our text, then, we find a call to prepare ourselves before coming to the supper. Verse 28 says plainly, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. 
But what kind of examination is this? Is it a brief and momentary reflection that I do in the pew before the supper is administered? No. No. Both the exegesis of the text, which I'll do briefly, and momentary reflect, uh, and, and the tenor of the text, rather, proves otherwise. It is a deep examination of one's heart. Because the word translated, so here's the exegetical part, examine, um, in the Greek, has the sense of putting oneself on trial to closely prove or scrutinize oneself, to be made approved for something. The apostle uses this word in uh, a bit later, a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 16.3, and the King James translates it approve. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve, there's that word, approve by your letters, them will I send uh, to bring you liberality into Jerusalem. And so there is basically a gating that is done here, a testing, a proving that the apostle has in mind. It signifies being put on trial and after being tested, approved to come. But what adds weight is not so much the Greek word that is underneath it, but instead the potential effect of neglecting to do so. In verse 29, he that drinketh, eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. I don't need to give you the Greek meaning of examine, in other words, for you to see what the folly is of not examining, because the scripture makes it plain. Eat and drink unworthily, you eat and drink damnation to himself. And here's another general rule, boys and girls, that you probably follow all your life, but may have missed when it comes to the scripture. As a general rule, The greater the potential harm of an act, the greater our need to prepare for that act. That's just a general rule. And this past week, I thought, what a wonderful illustration of that. Uh, Boys and girls, you may have played in the snow this past week and in the ice. Normally in Texas, what do you do? You just bolt out the door, don't you? You just say, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to play right now. And there's no need to really prepare much because the weather is usually um, uh, reasonable. But this past week, Since there was a great danger ahead of you if you did not prepare to go outside, after all, you might get frostbite, you might slip and fall and hurt your body, you probably spent a fair amount of time to prepare and suit up to go outside. You took time to prepare because the consequences of not preparing are just too great. But when you did prepare, and my children, uh, some of them were playing for quite some time outside as they prepared to go You enjoy the blessings of being out in the snow, and you receive joy in being out there having prepared. But if you did not prepare, you might have been miserable, or maybe you would have gotten very hurt, and maybe even had to go to the hospital with frostbite. You see, it's what made the difference was the preparation. Well, our text says that many rush into the supper without preparing, and they receive a great, great consequence for it that instead of having the joy of nearness to Christ, they find themselves getting hurt. Verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. This is is a, a text about believers, friends. This is not unbelievers. Believers are becoming sickly and dying, because he uses the word sleep to signify their bodily death. That's what the scripture says about the bodies of those Christians who died. It is as though they are sleeping in their bed, as our catechism puts it, waiting for the resurrection of the dead. Not that their souls are sleeping, but their bodies are sleeping, as in the grave. 
Whereas for the unbeliever, the imagery is more profound, like a prison cell that the body is in. And that's how our catechism explains it. That for the unbeliever, it's like the, the grave is a prison cell while the soul is in hell waiting for the resurrection as well. But the resurrection body is a wicked body that they get, not a glorious body. So sleep here is speaking of the, the bodies of believers resting in the grave. Why? Because they did not prepare themselves and the Lord judged them and chastened them. Look at verses 31 and 32. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. See, that's again, terminology speaking to believers. Believers are chastened. Unbelievers get condemnation. We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be here as condemned with the world. In other words, friends, the Lord will chasten us for not preparing ourselves to uh, coming to the supper. It, it says here, that he will even kill you so that you will be not conformed to the world in unbelief by partaking unworthily. In a way, it's almost like uh, that uh, reminder, isn't it, that the tree of life is blockaded so that Adam and Eve couldn't partake of it confirmed in their fallen estate. In a lot of ways, he's like, I am keeping you from the supper so you do not heap more damnation, and I guess you will have to die. Because you come without preparing yourself and examining yourself. So, our text speaks of the supper, gives us a grave warning, and shows us we have to prepare. But the text by itself is actually insufficient, I believe, to explain what Paul has in mind for examination. And we miss, I mean, we miss it because we forget the Old Testament moorings that this text has. Because uh, Jesus Christ instituted, you remember, we saw that in our first sermon on the Lord's Supper. He instituted the Supper to replace the Passover. And you saw that as the significance of the institution in that first sermon. And that there is a definitive link between the two. And the linkage is not found in this text, but in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. I want you to listen to this carefully. Because we usually focus on the last part, not the first. Here is the first part. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. And here's what we usually focus on. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. We focus on Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, which is good. But we miss the significance of the first part. Purge out therefore the old leaven. Do you know where that comes from in your Old Testament, friends? You have to know where that comes from so you can understand what preparation is meant to be like. The link is to the feast of the unleavened bread tied to Passover. To prepare for that feast, Exodus 12, 15 says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. You shall remove leaven from your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Now, I think for those of you who know the scriptures, you're already hearing almost essentially 1 Corinthians 11 in that warning there. To, uh, so I'll come to the typology. But first I want you to, to see that to remove all leaven from a home is a painstaking process. Leaven's not easy to re- remove. It required significant, here's that word again, preparation before the feast can be enjoyed. 
But we need to ask, what is God communicating through this? Why does he say that in 1 Corinthians 5-7, purge out the old leaven? And how is the link made to Exodus 12-15? Does God care about us before the Lord's Supper casting out leaven in our homes? Does he care about that? No, he doesn't care about that one bit. The apostle tells us the significance because after he exhorts us to purge out the old leaven in 1 Corinthians 5-7, he teaches what the leaven pictured in the Old Testament in verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, in other words, leaven pictured sin. To keep the feast of the Lord's Supper, then, we must purge our malice and our wickedness and all manner of sinfulness from our hearts. The leaven pictured in the Old Testament Passover. And I want to now go back to connecting the dangers in not preparing between the Testaments, because that is our direct link here. In Exodus 12.15, I'll read it again. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. You see, those who did not prepare for the feast and those who did not purge out the leaven, they receive Old Testament excommunication. Cut off, meaning death. Is that any different from, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself? You see, friends, the tenor of preparation in the New Testament is absolutely grounded in the Old Testament. And you need to see that. We miss, I'll just say this going to a general principle again, we miss the richness and fatness of our faith when it is divorced from its Old Testament foundations. And when we lose these principles from the scriptures, our faith is very flat and two-dimensional. And our souls are not filled with fatness, but leanness instead when we don't understand the richness God is communicating. So from that, I hope you see the scriptural basis to preparation, and it's not just limited to 1 Corinthians 11. Much more could be said. Even in our sermon introduction, right, you heard the words prepare, 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 over and over again out of the scriptures. But some might object, and maybe they haven't seen such things yet, by God's help, and they ask, why do we need so much preparation for the Lord's Supper I've heard this. Do we not also need to prepare for the preaching of the word? Well, why is this any different? And uh, let me just say, uh, I'll deal with weekly communion in another sermon. But this is usually asked by weekly communion advocates because they understand, if they don't want to admit it, that you cannot prepare the way that uh, the Passover was prepared for and the way that the Lord's Supper is called to be prepared for, the way at least I'm preaching it. And so they understand that and they say, well, why is it any different from preaching of the word? And I'll, I'll deal with, like I said, the frequency another time. But what I want to say about weekly communion advocates is they often try to replace the profound heart work required in preparing for communion with a liturgical rote and ceremonial observance. That's really at the heart of it, as though they become Roman Catholics and believe that the sacrament itself has efficacy just by quaffing it down and by chewing on the bread. They won't say that, of course, but at the end of the day, that's the mentality. I need to have this every week. But they don't see the need to really prepare to meet with the Lord. And the Passover was just once a year, friends, right? And it was efficacious for the entirety of the year. And the Lord Jesus replaced Passover with the Lord's Supper. 
I'll deal with frequency another time. But I just want to say that the weekly observance of the supper, which discards the need to prepare, is spreading like cancer throughout Reformed churches. And without naming denominations, in the very large denomination where this is the, the majority practice probably by now, all I hear is many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Because biblical heart religion where men and women walk close to Christ in holiness, is being replaced by liturgy and liturgical actions. But that maybe, maybe seems like a bit of a rant. But that aside, I want to consider this objection and the distinction between preaching and the supper so that you understand. When the word of God is preached, and I will deal with preaching another time in the series on worship, it is preached to all, to the converted and unconverted. The word of God is a converting ordinance, and it is also a sanctifying ordinance. The Lord's Supper is not a converting ordinance, because it has danger signs for those who are unconverted. And you know, in the word of God, the minister is likened to a sower sowing seed promiscuously in Matthew chapter 13. And what did Mark 16, 15 say? Preach the gospel to every creature, every creature that you run into. Preach the gospel. Because the word of God converts, convicts, exhorts, and edifies. But the supper is very different, friends. It is reserved for the covenant people of God. It is only for those who have heard the preaching of the word. And they have heard the preaching of Christ crucified. And they have taken hold of him by faith. Those who see the cup of blessing, really, as that cup we bless in the New Testament, as the New Testament in Christ's blood, we see that cup for what it is. We are those who submit to the Lord by faith and repentance. We are those who say, I trust not in myself. I trust in Jesus Christ alone to save. They are the ones who rejoice in Christ. That God says in the covenant meal, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a covenant meal or a covenant feast for the covenant people of God. That is why our sermon on the sacraments stressed that these are covenant signs and seals. Where we partake of the blood of Jesus shed for his people only. And as Calvinists, that comes right out of limited atonement, doesn't it? That this blood was only shed for the elect. So only those who have expressed faith in himself. I lay down my life for my sheep, he said. And so this is for his sheep only. And I want you to think on the tenor of the warning of Hebrews 10 verse 29. And think of the blood of the covenant. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Trampling the blood of the covenant, profaning, profaning the blood of Jesus Christ is what we can do when we come to the supper in an unworthy manner. Because you treat the blood of Jesus Christ as unholy and profane. And that means you must know what the blood of Christ signifies. And you must believe what it signifies. And you must embrace what it signifies. And not just say, I am a Christian and I am just going to come and take some tokens at the, that the church administers. But I embrace all that is signified in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I have to discern, the text says, the body and blood of the Lord. So the supper 
is reserved for the people of the covenant who have pleaded the blood of the covenant. They must not come with an external profession. They must not come profaning and making a mockery of God by walking as sinners the entire week and then coming in hypocrisy, unrepentant, profaning the blood of the Lord. These are solemn things, friends. Very different from the preaching of the word. Well, so with that, to establish the basis of preparation, and I've bled into the second heading, which is the practice of preparation. Let's move into it now. So let us ask, what does this examination look like, practically speaking? You've probably picked up on several general themes thus far, such as casting out sinfulness in the heart as old leaven, such as examining yourself to see if you're in the faith. But there are other general principles of examination for the sacramental feast that you should consider before coming to the Lord's Supper. And um, I'll just say, because it makes my life a lot easier, our godly forefathers have spent a lot of time on this theme. A lot of time. There have been many contentions with both Rome and other elements in the church that have caused the church to do a lot of good work here. And there's a good expression of the principles of examination found in both the shorter and larger catechisms. Uh, Boys and girls, you might want to consider shorter catechism, question 97, on how to prepare for the Lord's Supper, and larger catechism, question 171, which I have put on your bulletin. Now, I'm not going to exegete their words. That's not the task of the preaching of the word. But... These godly men have done so much work in this area, I refer you to them, but more importantly to the scripture proofs that they draw out to explain these things. I have never found any other work so helpful for preparation as these two catechisms. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take their work and coalesce it around three major areas of examination. More could be said on this point, but this hits the broad categories we should not miss. Um, And I'll just give you, uh, for your expectation, like our sermon on the seven marks of true repentance, this is a sweep and a survey. Each of these categories is worthy of probably multiple sermons, so keep that in mind. So the three areas I want to consider are, first, our faith in Christ, second, our sins and repentance, and third, our love to God and neighbor. So the first area, which is our faith in Christ. When you come to the supper... You have to be, have to be united to Jesus Christ by faith. But before you can understand if you are in Christ, you must ask, do I understand who Christ is and what he has done? Because a lot of people say, I believe in Jesus. And you ask, who is Jesus? And they have no clue. Jesus is a good example for me. He uh, shows me how to be loving to my neighbor. And yes, that's true. But they miss the point that he is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And no sins are cleansed unless your faith is in him. And no righteousness can be yours unless your faith is in him. So you must ask, do I understand who Christ is and what he has done? Our text expresses that succinctly when it says you must discern the Lord's body in verse 29. You must discern that the bread of the supper, as I've already said, is not a carnal meal to fill your belly, but that it represents the very body of the Lord given for your soul. But the phrase, the Lord's body, is a packed phrase. And it really does tell you, right, that 
it, in that small phrase, it actually keeps people like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses from the table of the Lord. Because it actually is calling you to discern who the Lord is and that the Lord had taken on a body. You must discern that Jesus Christ is the Lord, Jehovah of Psalm 99, that Jesus Christ is God. You have to know that before you come to the table. But he is also Jehovah who has taken on a body. That is the God-man. That is who Jesus Christ is. That is what the Lord's body communicates. This is a simple test of your orthodoxy, of the orthodox Christ. Do I know this? And do I believe this about Jesus Christ is the question you should ask yourself in examination. But what else must I know about his body? Most importantly, that it was crucified and broken for sinners. In discerning the Lord's body, I discern that my salvation required the breaking, the breaking of the God-man's body as he was crucified on the cross for sinners like me. It is your knowledge of Christ and his gospel of grace to undeserving sinners like you that you must discern. And see, my suspicion is, and I I know this because even as I prepare the sermon, I am often confronted by how little I think on that. And I suppose it's the same for you as well. And so you are called before the supper to force yourself to think on that. Am I discerning the Lord's body, the God-man broken for me? No salvation outside of Jesus Christ. That if he was not broken, I could never be saved because I am not good. Let me jump ahead and intrude a bit on our last heading. The point of this examination, and I trust that as I even preached such simple things, there was a greater appreciation and a profound hunger for Jesus and a desire for Jesus in your soul. This is the point of our examination, to make this examination a joyous test of your heart. That when you examine yourself, your soul says, I hunger all the more to meet with this Jesus. God Almighty, the Lord of heaven, come to be broken bodily for a sinner like me. What great news, what great joy is at the table. Do you discern those things? If you do, say, praise the Lord for such a Savior. And if you realize that you do not right now, what do you do? Do you walk away from the table forever? No. When you examine yourself and you see you don't know these things, you are called to turn to the Lord in faith and repentance and believe on the gospel and put your faith in the true Christ that you could come. The whole point, I'll again skip to the end, is that let a man examine himself so that he comes. That's what it says. The point of the examination is when I fall short and I repent of those things, I come as a repentant sinner in need of grace. Now, you might object and say, well, I have committed my life to Jesus Christ. I have put my faith in him, and it seems morbid to continually ask this question. But first, let me say, I am not saying this. The text says it. Let a man examine himself. And come. If you have a contention with this, your contention is with God and not anything I'm saying right now. But what I want you to do, though, is to see it's needful for you. You must examine yourself because how many do you know who have deceived themselves for so long and then become apostates? 
They think they are Christians, they say they are Christians, and they say so before they abandon the faith. I know many of you in this congregation have told me at one point in your life or another, you believe you were once false converts. Many of you have said that. And then you realized one day, I do not actually believe the gospel. My heart has not been converted to the Lord. My profession is a hypocrisy. And so every time we come to the table, we ask, am I the hypocrite? Am I the apostate? Am I the backslider? Listen to 2 Corinthians 13.5 again. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. That's a general call to examine yourself, not just at the supper. And do you remember? I want to tie this to the first Lord's Supper. Do you remember what Jesus said at that very first supper? Verily I say to you, unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Matthew 26, 21. He left the question open, friends. He knew what he was doing in that question. He didn't sort of whisper to Judas alone and say, you're the betrayer. He had a general call to all of his disciples, and he knew who the betrayer was. But he asked the question generally so that they might examine themselves. And what do you remember their reaction was? And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? They realized it was not beyond any of them to be the Lord's betrayer. And what I want you to say, see is that it is the mature Christian who understands this. The mature Christian grows to know more and more that I am not beyond apostasy, but save for the grace of God that I depend on day by day to make it, I very well could betray the Lord. So a good examination before the supper is to ask, can I imagine any scenario where I would leave my Savior? It's a good test of the heart, friends. Press yourself in it. Consider the desires you have for sin in the world. Do not be like Peter, who was told he would deny Jesus, and without any self-examination that time, he made a display of bravado. Even if I were to die, I would not deny you. And what happens? Of course, he denies him three times. You see, we are like that, friends. We don't press into our heart and find those areas where we might give up Jesus Christ. You know how it went with Peter. So take the time and ask, if the gun were at my head, or I were tempted with $50 million to walk away from Jesus, would I do it? And you can add whatever else is there. And you can maybe start with your desires, right? Uh, boys and girls, if my desires for video games, or it's for this or that. If I were told that the next 52 weeks, uh, I had the chance to not go to church, and I could play my video games or do whatever, would I do it? Would that be a temptation? If so, you're on the road to apostasy. You're called to examine your desires. Professing believers have betrayed the Lord for far less than millions of dollars, friends. Judas did it for 30 pieces of silver. It doesn't take very much. You're going to find, as the screws are tightened in our society shortly, that many who once professed the faith are going to abandon it. You see it daily on social media as it becomes unpopular to hold to the doctrine of the word. So, these are the things, then, when we examine ourselves, that testify that our faith in Christ is sure and true. You know, 
I want to also remind you that faith is often confused with mere knowledge, right? We talked about a doctrinal test. Uh, but that's the error known as Sandemanianism. It was uh, developed by John Glass, and he was expelled from the Church of Scotland in the 18th century. Faith is more than just knowledge. It is also assent and trust. So an examination of my faith asks, do I truly trust Jesus? Do I not just know the orthodox points of doctrine concerning him? Yes, he is God-man. Yes, he is uh, the one who was slain and put on the cross for the salvation of sinners. I have to ask, have I received Christ personally? And have I rested on him alone for my salvation? Do I trust that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone will save me to the uttermost? Can I say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him? Examine your faith before the supper. When he asks of me the question in John 6.67, will you also go away? Will I say, there is nothing else I can say, Lord, but Lord, to whom shall I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. That's the difference between mere knowledge in the head and a heart that trusts the Savior. That's saving faith there, friends. Examine your faith before you come, because faith feeds on Christ in the sacrament. So that was our first area of examination, our faith in Christ. Let's consider, second, our sins and repentance. And this examination is analogous to rooting out leaven before the feast of unleavened bread. We are to dive into our hearts, friends, and shine the word of God into it. I found it as I was studying this. The Jews had a particular um, tradition for searching out for leaven. I think it's still done in quarters for uh, searching for leaven before Passover. I think it's a it's a illustration, right? It's an illustration. It's not biblical, but it's a good illustration. They made a tradition on the nightfall on the evening before Passover in what they called bedekat uh, chametz, um, and in this. Uh, tradition, the father gathers his children, he takes a candle, a spoon, and a linen cloth, and they go and search for leaven in every crevice of the home with that candle. And when they find leaven, uh, he takes it in the spoon, he puts it into the linen bag, and then when they're done searching the entirety of the home, they throw the bag outside the home and they light it on fire. I think it's a tremendous illustration of what's searching out our heart for sinfulness is like. We don't use a candle. We use the light of the very word of God. We shine the word of God into the deepest recesses of our hearts. We find the leaven there, the sin there, and then we repent of that sin. And what a wonderful illustration, right? The, the, the leaven doesn't just go into the bag so it can come back out another day. It is cast out of the home and it is lit on fire so it can never return in. And that is a picture of repentance, whether they mean it to be or not. That is a wonderful picture of what it is to search out the leaven in our hearts. And remember, use the law of God. It is the light of the word to show us our sinfulness. Now, I'm not going to preach another sermon on repentance inside of this one. I'll refer you to the sermon I preached in 2 Corinthians 7 just a couple weeks ago. And you see what true repentance is like. But in it, you are called for new obedience, right? And that's what repentance is. Not just finding the sin, not just confessing the sin, but also cast it out of my heart in true repentance and then new obedience so it can never return into my heart. Burning it up, 
by the light of the word. So that's an examination of our sins and repentance. Let's consider our third area of examination, our love for God and love for neighbor. And this is vital and important. Not that the others aren't. They all are vital and important. But I must ask, do I love God and do I desire God? Do I desire Jesus Christ? Why am I coming to the table? Why am I Christian anyway? You know, I want to say is we are so profane that we often come to the table thinking only of ourselves. One brother told me this, and this is not anybody you know, this is in another life, so to speak, when I, before I was a Reformed Christian. One brother told me, I need the sacrament badly. I am a wreck right now. Now, I sympathized with him, and I understand. I've heard that often. But too few Christians, when considering the table, say this, I need Christ badly. I need the Lord Jesus Christ badly. I need him. That's why I desire to come to the table. I love him. I need him. He is my life. He is my strength. He is my desire. Jesus Christ said that the great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. That is seen in a man like David who sang, As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. You have to ask yourself, do I love God? And do I thirst for Christ in this way? Is that not why you come to the table? Because his invitation is, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Who is it in John chapter uh, 7 that is the water of life? Jesus cries out at the feast, doesn't he? If any man will, let him come and drink. Drink of me. Right? That is the invitation. So you need to check your desire for the Lord. Do I just love what God can give me? Or do I love God for who he is? Does he have first place in my heart? That even if, even if he doesn't give me any grace, I can say I met with my God. And that is enough. That is more than enough. That is what I want. Does he have first place in my heart then, you ask, or is something else crowding him out? But if I love him, I must also love my brethren as well. Because the table is only for the disciples of Jesus Christ. We heard that earlier. But he said in John 13.35, another communion text of ours, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Consider our text's warning about divisions. Uh, I didn't read it, but verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. And then he says in verse 20, When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. I have to, and this is a place that we are loath to check. Do I love the people who will come to the table? Do I love every single one of them? Is there a person here that I would just rather would not come to this church? If so, there is repentance and restoration required in your relationship with this brother or sister. You ask yourself, am I the divisive person in God's house? 
Are there contentions because of me? Usually we're thinking about other people. That person is divisive. This person doesn't get along. And you never ask the question, is it I, Lord? Is that causing me not to eat the Lord's Supper, but instead be judged by the Lord? I also have to examine, have I caused offenses towards a brother or sister? I also have to ask, have I forgiven those who have asked to be forgiven? Matthew 5.23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath, uh, hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. You need to think on these things. I do too, before coming to the Lord's Supper. So to reiterate, and again, you could preach a whole sermon on each of these. First, examine your faith in Christ. Second, your sins and repentance. And third, your love for God and neighbor. And the reason we do not often profit from the supper is our lack of examination, friends. I just want to say, God's people, I include myself in this, we are like little children, friends. The things of God have little weight for us. We say we are all about the gospel, but when it comes to truly walking with the Lord, we find excuses as to why we do not need to cleave unto Him so closely as our life. I have swept past many texts quickly that speak of our need to exercise examination, and I know these things are not natural to us. And that is the very reason, not tradition, that the church has seen the need to come alongside her people to help. And that is why we often have preparatory special services before the supper to remind you of these things. Because the best of us, and I include myself, we forget. There are so many things I suspect you have forgotten just in the areas of examination I have pulled out in this brief survey. Because in the preparatory services then, the word of God comes to us on what we must do to prepare to meet with our God, and we are reminded of what we must do. When we examine ourselves, as in verse 31, this is our calling. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. We have to judge ourselves. We have to judge ourselves before we come to the table. And our preparatory services are meant to be aids and not burdens to you. We do it in view of 2 Corinthians one twenty four. Listen to this well. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. We do these things to help you along in your spiritual pilgrimage, that you would come to the table of the Lord with great profit. So with that, then, let's conclude with the goal of preparation, which you've probably heard already. And the goal of preparation is that having prepared, you would come to the table. The goal of preparation is not to see my deficiencies and then be in dismay and stay away, but rather having repented and having grown in my desire for the Lord, I would come. Verse 28, let a man examine himself and then what? And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. You know, in those three areas and those three marks of examination, they truly will make us see how low we are. But I hope in every case you have saw the scripture as showing how glorious Jesus Christ is. The point of examination is not to get to the end of it and pat ourselves on the back, friend. 
The goal of examination is to get to the end of it and say how deeply and desperately I need a Savior. It is to show how necessary the gospel is and how I need Jesus Christ or I perish. The examination of my faults make me flee to the table for grace and mercy. By the grace of God, the apostle says, I am what I am. And so by the grace of God, let me have grace, Lord, at the table. But what do you do if you doubt your preparation? That's why I put larger catechism, question 172. Perhaps maybe the most pastoral of our question and answers in the larger catechism. And I will sum it up like this and not read the entirety of it. The summation is, if you desire Christ, you long to turn from your sin and have true saving faith in him, but you still doubt your preparation, the catechism tells you to come to the table. Why? Because the sacrament is designed for weak and doubting Christians. It is designed for the man man and woman who cries, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. That is what the table is for. And the reason for the preparation is this. It is the one who never doubts his preparation that should not come. That is the man who thinks he's making it to heaven without Christ. Because I can tell you, I have spoken to the most godly of men, and they all say how short they come of what preparation is called for. They all see, I don't pray as some of the godliest ministers I know. They're always saying how short they fall of what they should be. But these are the same men, when you hear them preach the word, all you hear is Christ. Because they know without Christ they are nothing. The Lord's Supper is meant for weak pilgrims to be strengthened. Labor to have your doubts resolved, but come. The Lord cries to you, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, I picked up this thought. It's not original to me, but I I will express it in my own way. I do not know all that there is to know about Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible is very clear. It doesn't show us what he looks like, what his physical body looks like. God did not want us to know that. It doesn't show us, was he six feet tall or five foot tall or how tall he was. God does not want us to know that. But I can say without a doubt that I know his heart because God wants you to know that. And it is found in this, a bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench. All of you bruised reeds and smoking flaxes, search your heart, bewail your unbelief, and come because he will not break you or quench you. One last note to the elders here. We are called in the word of God to pray for our people and their preparation because many of them will not prepare uh, or will prepare haphazardly. We are to pray to the Lord for their preparation as Hezekiah did. In 2 Chronicles 30, verses 18 to 20, it's a beautiful, rich text. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. See, did not prepare for the Passover correctly. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, 
The good Lord pardon every one that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. So they are those with true faith, but they haven't done what they should have done to prepare to meet with the Lord. And in verse 20, the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. But people of God, though we are bound to pray for you, your elders are actually not the anti-type for Hezekiah, but Jesus Christ is, isn't he? He is the one who intercedes for you at God's right hand uh, when you come uh, with a heart to seek him. Your preparation and mine is not always what it ought to be. That does not excuse our lack of preparation, but is merely another demonstration of the great mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who we heard in Psalm 99 is seated on that holy throne of power, but also a holy throne of mercy as well. But what is for us is to never put the Lord our God to the test, friends. Isn't that the constant refrain? He is very merciful, but let us not put him to the test and test his mercy. Let us do what the Lord says. Examine yourself and so come and partake of the supper. Amen. Next time, Lord willing, I hope to consider frequency and the idea of communion seasons. But until that, then let's rise as we go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, our God, we confess, O God, that we often are unwilling to do the heart work that our faith calls for, that uh, we are willing to exert ourselves in so many areas in our life. We exert ourselves in our labor, our vocations. We exert ourselves when it comes to enjoying time out and vacations. We exert ourselves in our hobbies. But the one place we refuse to exert ourselves is when it comes to our faith and our living God. O oh Lord our God, be very merciful to your people. And would you, uh, would you uh, forgive us for these things? And Father, would you instead cause to grow in our heart a greater desire to prepare to meet with our God? That as we prepare every Lord's Supper to meet with you, Lord, that we would actually be growing in our desire to meet with you in glory that we would say if we get such a small but wonderful taste of the Lord here and now as we prepare our hearts, what a thing it is to be a bride who has made herself ready for her husband. Oh Lord, grow us in this desire, for only you can do it. And we pray this to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.